0: If you want to clap? and clap loudly. If not, don't clap. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Usually we don't clap. Okay, so don't clap. <laughs> but it's like half-hearted want to clap. Don't clap. <laughs> it's okay. Don't have to clap. Uh, we praise the Lord uh, for Easter. You know, Easter. Every time we say, uh, "He is risen," and the people will reply, "He is risen indeed." So let's try. He is risen. Amen. For the last four months, we have been looking at the Old Testament, the significant story of the Old Testament to retell the greatest love story ever told from creation to Christ. How every of those stories actually point to Jesus, the redemptive story of God. And even in the Old Testament, there have been motifs, hints of the resurrection. Where? Um, Today is one of the passages that we'll look at, which is Ezekiel 37. A vision God gave to the prophet Ezekiel, about 500 uh, BC or 580 something BC about the resurrection of these dry bones. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, as we unpack your word once again, we pray for the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts. They will see Christ lifted up, Christ resurrected. He gives us this hope of the resurrection so that we'll live the resurrected life and God, you'll get all the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain during the World War II. During his funeral, they sang a lot of those great hymns of the church, uh, eloquent Anglican liturgy. But right at the end of the service, after the benediction, he had instructed a bugle to be played from a high point in St. Paul's Cathedral. And he played taps, which is universal signal for the end of the day. Good night, end of the day. And then suddenly, there was a dramatic U-turn. Because from somewhere another corner of the church, another bugle played a tune to Reveille, which means it's morning, it's time to wake up. You see, this was Churchill's testimony to the world, that at the end of time, taps is not the last tune we hear, but Reveille. What he is saying is, worst things are never last things. you're not as if you understand. Very cheap, actually, you also don't understand. It's like what we usually say, you know, uh, at the end, everything will be okay. If it's not okay, it's because it's not the end. It may sound simplistic, but really what we're talking about is that there is a reality of a resurrection. Churchill did this because he believed in the resurrection. There was something after death. The question is, what is our reality? Because it's not just about what happens after death, But that truth works itself back into this life. How we live our lives, the choices that we make. And so this is the question at hand about the resurrection. What about the resurrection? That is what we'll talk about today from Ezekiel 37. First, we'll see the vision that God gave Ezekiel. The vision. Secondly, it's fulfillment. Threefold fulfillment. And then finally, how we respond to the resurrection. The book of Ezekiel, Prophet Ezekiel's, was written when the Israelites were taken to captivity in Babylon. You see, by this time, Israel had divided into two nations. Northern nation, Israel, southern Judah. But 150 years before this, 736 BC, northern Is- the Israel northern country has been destroyed. The remnants came down south and lived with- in Judah. And because of their disobedience, God had prophesied that they will be destroyed by the Babylonians And they will live in Babylon for 70 years before they come back. Alright? So, Babylon was a superpower at the time. They came at 586 BC, conquered uh, Judah and took the people away. 70 years later, they will return and they will be known as Yoda. Because of Judah, Yoda, which is where we get the, the term Jews. So from the Hebrews at the time of Abraham as a tribe, under Moses, they became a nation known as Israel. And then finally, after the return from captivity, they were known as Jews. Okay, and so this is the, the history of the people of God. So while they were living in Babylon, Jerusalem has been destroyed. They longed for their home. God has prophesied, I'll, I'll bring you back 70 years later, but He also sent the prophet Ezekiel to give them this vision. Let's look at this vision. Verse 37, uh, chapter 37 the hand of the Lord was upon me and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. And He set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and they were very dry. He saw many, many dry bones. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O oh Lord God, you know, meaning I don't know, only God you know, your sovereign. Again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. You will come to life. I will put on sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and that you will know that I am the Lord. is this vision of the skeletons coming to life, God breathing his breath, the breath, ruach, means breath or spirit. It's the same word in Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God hovered over the surface, the ruah, the breath. It's the same word used when God says, I'll breathe the breath into Adam, that he may have life. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, Flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. The bones rattled, and then they come together, you know, as if it's going to come alive, but yet there was still no breath. They, they need the breath, the spirit. He said to me, Prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, Son of Man, say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breathe, and, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came to them, and they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And now he explains what this prophecy is about. He says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up; our hope has perished, we are completely cut off. In Babylon, they lived there and they saw the power of Babylon and said, how is it possible they will ever go back to our homeland and rebuild Jerusalem? We have no hope, we are dry, hopeless. But God says, I will cause it to come back, the whole house of Israel, not just Judah, but all the 12 tribes, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves, cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. God says, I'll bring you back to life. I'll bring you back into the land of Israel and then you will know that truly I'm God. I will put my spirit within you. You will come to life. I'll place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. 37 follows after Ezekiel 36. We skipped over that, okay? So a few weeks later, we'll go back. Ezekiel 36 is where God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. Okay, as New Testament believers it is because of the new covenant that we are belong to the family of God. Okay, so what is promised is not just a revival of Israel, but really the spiritual revival. He said, I'll put the Spirit within you. Ezekiel 36 says, the Spirit of God will indwell in us. In the past, Holy Spirit comes onto the people, use them, and then He leaves like Samson. God used them for a certain task. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells in us permanently until we die and we see Him again. He says because of this in Ezekiel 36, that we will obey God's Word. It's a revival of Israel. So God gave them two visions. First is this, the, all the skeletons come to life. Then He gave a second vision. The Word of the Lord came to me again. And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick, write on it for Judah and the sons of Israel and his companions. Take another stick for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. I remember we had dealt with this before in Judah and Joseph, the story. And really, they represent all the 12 tribes. The whole house of Israel will revive. Not only will they revive and they will be united. My servant David will be king over them. They will have one shepherd. They will obey my ordinances, statutes and observe them. By this point, David has, is dead for almost 500 years. But God says, a son of David will, will become king. This is related to last week when we talked about God's promise to David. So you see, all these stories in the Old Testament, they are not just stories. They actually build up to one big picture. That Christ would come to save us, to die for our sins and resurrect. It's not a a plan B, suddenly God thought about it. No. From beginning of time, the lamb that was slain from creation, that was God's plan. God showed His great love for us because He intended for Jesus to come save us. And along the way, he begins to point to this Messiah, this Savior, who He is. And he says, "I will make a covenant of peace with them. It is an everlasting covenant. I will place them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in the midst forever. Now at this point, Jerusalem is destroyed, there's no more temple, but God says, I am going to build up my temple again. My dwelling place will also be with them." I will be their God. They will be my people. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. My sanctuary is in their midst forever. God is describing a national revival. So when we read Ezekiel 37, it is about the restoration of the state of Israel. But more so, it points to the greater resurrection, the revival of the kingdom of God in the new covenant because of the resurrection of Christ. And so when we say we believe in the supernatural, what does it mean? We believe there's resurrection. What does it mean? My pastor's voice, I shared a quote by T.S. Eliot. Believing in the resurrected life is not simply believing that in this life I live well, then in heaven I live better. It's not that in this life I deprive myself of certain things so that in heaven I can enjoy everything. It means that the resurrected life is the greatest reality we have now. It is to believe the supernatural is the greatest reality in the here and now. What we believe about afterlife works back into this life. That means we are not afraid of being shortchanged. That we have missed God's good plan. We have missed out. No. Because we have a resurrected life. It means we have comfort from our loved ones who have died in Christ because we will see them Again. Do we have this hope of the resurrection? Because God has promised this. I used to have a friend, he had cancer, and then he went to remission. A year later, cancer came back again. This time, he had to chop off his arm. And we were praying for him on stage. And I remember how he gripped our hands with the, with the arm that was going to be amputated. And after the prayer, he said, In the resurrection, I will be whole again, I will get my arm back. Now that is the hope of the resurrection. We ask ourselves, now do we have this hope? Is your greatest reality the resurrected life or is it what is in front of us? Our life now, want to be happy, look at the economy, not so good We be worried or do we truly believe God is overall sovereign and in charge of our lives? Now let's see the threefold fulfilment of this promise. God promised them the eight nations of Israel will revive, And it happened in uh, 536 BC. God says, 70 years you live in Babylon, then you will come back. But He says, how is it possible? Babylon is so strong. Well, God used the Persian king, Cyrus the Great. He took Babylon, the city, in one day. How was it possible? In the book of Daniel, we see this. The king of Babylon at the time, Belshazzar, the king held a feast. This is about 530-something BC. Seventy years after Jerusalem was taken and they were living in Babylon. Belshazzar, the king held a great feast. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand of his leaders. They drank and they worshipped their gods. Suddenly, a finger like a man emerged and began writing on the wall opposite him. When the king saw this, his face grew pale. If you remember this, those words were some strange words, mini mini taka ufrasin Don't know what is it. He also don't know. I also don't know. So he asked all the wise men of his kingdom, nobody knew except Daniel. You want to know what it means? Come for our church retreat. You know, our church retreat is on the book of Daniel. And there's a special workshop on biblical prophecy, okay? So and although I encourage you to come, actually there's no more space. (laughs) We are fully booked. So too bad for you, you missed out. Okay, so... um. Daniel says the writing means God is going to send His judgment today. Herodotus, the Greek historian known as the father of history because apparently he's the first person who started recording history meaningfully. He records. He says, you know, at that time, Cyrus the Great of Persia had already surrounded Babylon for six months. But he couldn't enter the city because it was well fortified. And these guys were so comfortable, they were drinking themselves until they were drunk. But what he was doing for six months, he was digging water channels around the Euphrates River outside. Because the Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon, but it's a huge river. So he dug channels and he waited for this day. He knew that one day in that year, they will worship their God and everyone will go drunk. That night when they were drunk, he broke through the channels and the level, water level of Euphrates dropped till their knee level. And so the great Persian army marched into the city of Babylon and took them in one night. Usually, there'll be inside the city where the river ran, there'll be gates that are closed. But because of the feast, all the gates were opened. And Cyrus the great of Persia, he had a different philosophy from Babylon. Babylon philosophy is when I conquer you, I take you to my homeland in Babylon, teach you my culture and language, assimilate you. Persia, was the other way. They send the people back, go back, build your homeland. And so he sent the people of Israel back home to rebuild Jerusalem as God has prophesied. Josephus, a Jewish historian, he recorded that when Cyrus the Great went by Jerusalem on his way, the Israelites (coughs) presented to him the great scroll scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 44-45, you can go back and read, written 150 years before this, it had already prophesied that Cyrus will be the shepherd of God. God will use Cyrus to release His people. 150 years before this happened, God had already prophesied. Not only that, in the book of Isaiah, interestingly, it talks about this. It says it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time the remnant of His people from all these surrounding nations The banished one of Israel, they will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, why second time? Because in the book of Isaiah, when it was written, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom still existed. They were not destroyed, so there was not even the first return, but this talks about a second return. Let me put this in a timeline for you, okay? The prophecy, actually 700, not 700, 700 and something, okay? 700. And then the first destruction happened, 586. 70 years later, Cyrus the Great returned them and then there was a second destruction at 70 A.D. under the Roman general Titus. Now, be- between 500 to 80 A.D. 70, Israel was always under the control of a foreign nation except for a short 100 years in between. That is where we read all the books of all the, all the prophets, right? After Ezekiel, we have all the minor prophets, uh, Zerubbabel, the, the whole history of Israel is there. Okay, so go read your Bible if you want to know. I can't go through everything. But AD 70, was destroyed. And this second return occurred in 1948. Now think about this. In 586 BC, just 70 years, the people couldn't believe that God could restore Israel. What more after 70 AD? No nation after being destroyed for more than 100 years ever come back together. They were always dispersed and assimilated. But Israel maintained its identity for 2,000 years. Theologians and historians before 1948, when they read the Bible, they talk about Israel being revived, like, like the book of Ezekiel, how it will be revived, how the temple will be rebuilt. Nobody believed that it was Israel. They always say, spiritually, the church has replaced it so Israel don't have to be revived. By 1948, it happened. And they fought for their lives, Right? They declared independence May 14th. The next day, they fought a war of independence, and they fought three significant wars. Can you imagine? The 14th of May, they they say they they have declared independence, and the next day, the Arabs vowed that they will push Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. At the time, there are no tanks or artillery. They only have nine helicopters, sixty soldiers, but only twenty ready, and they're outnumbered one to one hundred. We say, uh. SAF doctrine, right, it's four to one, you know. means four Singaporeans, one enemy, then I fight. Three, I hide. Okay? They were fighting one against a hundred. How is it possible? And there are miracles after miracles. Moshe Dayan, he talks about this war in Dijina. Okay? When there were 200 Syrian tanks. He was a colonel at the time. Later, he became one of the prime ministers. But, he went there with four motors, four motors against 200 tanks. And these four motors, you know, when, when they were made, they were used in the 1870 Prussian War. You say, huh, what's Prussian? I also don't know. Prussian, the, the, the old Russian-French war in 1870. And here, almost 100 years later, they used four motors against 200 modern tanks. They hit the first two and the rest were afraid. They turned around and fled but had the Syrian known that actually they only had four motors, they would have just rumbled through. In the Gath, which is the south, the Egyptian army, the colonel there or the commander, based on the Old Testament Bible, found an ancient route to the back. He, he flanked the Egyptian army based on this ancient route. He used bulldozers to push aside the big boulders and overnight, they went to the back of the Egyptian army and hit their headquarters and 14 days later, the Egyptians surrendered In Galilee, a platoon of uh, reserve Israelis, they took a wrong turn. They ended up in Lebanon. This guy Topoking. ended up in Lebanon, you know. But you know what they saw? They saw the whole supply chain of the Syrian army. They carried vehicles filled with weapons and food. And again, they hit the first vehicle, and the first vehicle carried it was a truck filled with hand grenades. So there was a huge explosion. Boom! And those people behind were so afraid, they just fled. They left their vehicles and ran away. And their platoon of soldiers, they barely had enough soldiers to drive those vehicles filled with food and weapons back to Galilee, to the front line. When they got back to Galilee, all the Syrian army had disappeared. What happened? They were fighting and they heard a a huge boom behind in Lebanon. And there were rumours that Lebanon had fallen to to Israel. And so, you know, their back line is being cut off, and so they were afraid, and they all fled. There were miracles after miracles, but somehow, they survived. The next significant war, this is years later, 1976. By now, Israel uh, is, very, is established. The war lasted only six days. You see, they were surrounded, right? They want not push them into the sea. But in six days, they won the war. And what I want to show you is the increase of land mass, you know, from before on the left side, To after the land increased by three times. Later, they gave up most of the land in exchange for a peace treaty so that those nations would not attack them. And subsequently, we always hear about the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Sinai Sinai Peninsula. It's all these lands that they they won during this war. The third significant war, Yom Kippur, in October 1973. Now, Yom, Day, Kippur, Atonement, is the Day of Atonement. Remember in the Old Testament, This is the day where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy day in the whole year in the Jewish calendar. So during the October 1973, the soldiers all went to the synagogues to worship God. They actually had intelligence indicating that the Arabs had moved all their army to the front line. But they didn't believe that the Arabs would attack because every time they attacked, they lost. So they went to worship and the Arabs attacked. In the north, there are only 180 tanks versus 1,400. In the south, there are only 500 soldiers versus 80,000. But you know what happened? The enemies broke through. Syrian broke through the front line within an hour. And then they paused. All they had to do was to rumble two more hours. They would hit the heart of Israel, which is Jerusalem. But they stopped in their tracks, literally. They thought, every time we fought them, we lost how is this possible? Is this an ambush? So they stopped for a few hours and allowed Israel to regroup and then finally they won. When Israel was being rebuilt, then David Gurion which later became the first prime minister, he said he rebuilt with the latest technology in one hand and the Bible in the other. Abraham Dor, a chief engineer, he discovered the ancient mines of Solomon and he said, it is as if someone put it there for us. In fact, in their office, they actually put this verse up as a plug. It says that God will lead them into this land of honey, milk and honey. And then verse 9, A land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper. Mines. And they discovered all these mines. They rebuilt and reforested the area. When you look at Israel today, it's always green. But you look on the Arab land, they are all brown like sand. Because they rebuilt. It says, knowing where trees grew more easily, where trees have flourished before, so they relied on the Bible. The first tree Abraham put in the soil of Bathsheba was the Tamarisk. Following his lead, we put out uh, 2 million in the same area. Abraham was right. The Tamarisk is one of the few trees we have found that thrives in the south where yearly rainfall is less than 6 inches. Now when we look at the rebuilding of Jerusalem, How did it happen? Why did it happen like that? We see miracles after miracles because God intended for them to be revived. You look at the prophecies given, not only that in 536, they will come back and be rebuilt. In the end times, Israel will be revived again. In fact, based on the description, the land mass is greater than what Israel is having now, which means there will be a greater revival of the nation more so because it's linked to the New Covenant, the third fulfillment is the resurrection of God's kingdom, the revival of God's kingdom because of the resurrection. There's some interpretive understanding of what will happen in the millennial. Again, you know, maybe you need to come for the retreat. But however you understand it, there is the understanding of this resurrection. We will be resurrected because Christ is resurrected. But how do we Respond to this resurrection. You know, there was a survey done online about questions regarding the resurrection. And these are the top three questions. Say I deeply admire Jesus and His message, but I'm also sceptical about the resurrection. Is it an essential belief? Must it be taken literally? Meaning, I like the teachings, be good, help people, but do I really need to believe in resurrection? Now, to answer this question, we have to look at the early believers. Because really, we have no right to answer, right? You believe or you don't believe, who cares? What matters was, the original people believed. Whether it was true or not, they believed it. N.T. Wright, his uh, theologian, said, why did Christianity arise? Why did it take the shape? It did. The early Christians themselves reply, we exist because of Jesus' resurrection. There is no evidence for a form of early Christianity in which resurrection was not a central belief. Because they believe in the resurrection. That is why when the plagues came into Rome and the Romans threw their sick loved ones on the streets, that is why when they had baby girls and they they felt that they were useless and they threw it on the streets, it was the Christians who were persecuted, who came along to take care of them, who caught the plagues themselves and died. But as a result of their sacrificial love, they won the entire Roman Empire to Christ. You say, why did they do that? The Romans fled their city, went into the hills to hide from COVID. Not COVID, plagues. That was intended, you know. See, you're so serious. They hid from the plagues, but the Christians went in to save the people and they caught the plagues themselves. Because they believed in the resurrection. The Apostle Paul himself, and in Scripture many times, it says about the resurrection, Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, then we are, of all men, most to be pitied. If our hope has nothing to do with the resurrected life, we only want to do good and live a good life, then we are most to be pitied. But there is a resurrection. You see, the first witnesses of the resurrection, the first person who witnessed the resurrection was Mary Magdalene, okay, a woman. You know, at that time, women's testimony were inadmissible at at court. They didn't believe women. So if I were to make up this resurrection, why would I use a woman to be an eyewitness? Right? If I were the one who, if if resurrection was a made-up story and I made it up, or the disciples made it up, they would have used other people to witness the resurrection of Christ, somebody credible, at least a man, you know? But why was it Mary Magdalene? Maybe because she was the, really the first one to saw it, to see it. At that time, the Jews—I mean, the Greeks—they worship all kinds of things. They worship people as gods. But the Jews, you know, after they came back from Babylon for five hundred years, they were so strict about their faith. They only worship God. They knew if they were disobedient, God would deal with them. So they were very serious. They don't worship human beings. But then suddenly, overnight, thousands upon thousands of Jews worshipped Jesus as God, Jesus as Messiah. Why? You know, for the two first 200 years of church, the Romans called Christians atheists. It's a bit ironical, right? Why? Because, well, you we must understand, in their culture, they were worshipping all kinds of gods. Then suddenly, this Christian sect came along and said, we will not partake in any of your worship. So to them, they'll say, ah, they don't believe in our God, so they call them atheists. And so to a people who were so strict about their faith, that would not worship human beings, why suddenly they worship Jesus? These are questions we need to ask. So, even if we don't believe in the resurrection, we cannot say that, but the, that the early church did not. We cannot divorce the good teachings of our faith with the reality of the resurrection. It is not historical. Second question that is popular is that, okay, I admire the good work Christianity inspires, but I'm troubled by the notion that people will be resurrected only if they have a direct relationship with Jesus. What about the good people of the world? Now you realise actually this, this statement is not quite true, you know. It says only people who believe in Jesus will be resurrected. Actually, everybody will be resurrected. It's just whether we will face, live with Christ, God, or we will face eternal punishment. And that is a notion we feel uncomfortable with. If God is love, why well, He punish people eternally? But if God is just, then how can He do this? You know, so we are a bit troubled. What about the good people of the world? Let me tell you something, friends. God is not interested in being reconciled or having a relationship with good people. He can only have relationship with perfect people. Because God is perfect, and anything less than perfect will face His judgment. It's like when there's light, there's no darkness In the presence of perfection, there's no imperfection. So how do we imperfect people? As the Bible says, all have sinned. All of us are imperfect. How can we have relationship with a perfect God? Well, by the perfect sacrifice in His Son, Jesus. That is why Jesus had to come and die and be Resurrected. Today, when we are accepted by a perfect God, it's not because we are perfect, but because on the account of Jesus, He declares us righteous. Not that we are righteous, He declares based on what He has done. And that is the Gospel. That is why Jesus has died and that is what His resurrection proved. What is fairness? What is good? I mean, seriously, if if we say God should save good people, how do you define good? must find a cure for cancer, and all of us are not good people. Or maybe you help an old woman cross the road. Okay, how many times? One time or ten times? or hundred times? Right? Who gets to decide? If we decide, then there's a relative standard. But God decides based on His immutable nature, unchanging nature. And God is perfect, and hence, His standard is perfect. And you think about it, if We say that, well, let God be loving and when we die, all of us are saved. If God is like that, then He's truly a God who is not just. Think about the mass murderers, the dictators. I mean, they just die and that's it. You mean they don't face judgment, everybody is saved? That's not fair. And so this concept of God's love and God's justice actually is our problem, correct? We cannot reconcile God's goodness, God's love and God's justice we cannot reconcile because we are limited. But it's not God's problem. If we believe in a God who creates ex nihilo from nothing to something, justice and love to balance them is not a problem for God. So, firstly, we must understand the church exists today because they believe in the resurrection of God. Whether it's real or not, they truly believed it. Secondly, this resurrection of Jesus is needed because there's no other way for a perfect God to come close to imperfect people. Then we say, uh, let's throw out this whole idea, you know, people say, this is the third question that often surface, people say faith is the answer, but what about science? Basically, saying say, I don't believe all this, I just believe in science. Now firstly, you must understand, science and faith, they are not in contradiction. They are just about different realms What is science? Science assumes a materialistic world. We only can tell you things of this materialistic world. Things that can be observed and tested. But faith is of a different realm, right? The supernatural realm, can you test it? Cannot. So you look at these two statements. There is no supernatural reality beyond this world. Secondly, there is a transcendent supernatural reality beyond this world. Which statement requires faith? It's a trick question. Both requires faith. Why? Because if you believe only in the material, the first statement, there's no supernatural. How do you know? How do you test it? You can't. You can only test what you can see. Hence, you take it by faith. So even if you say, I believe in science, you know you're saying that I take by faith that there's only a material world. If you take the other statement, which is religious people, we believe. How do we know we cannot test Also, We also take it by faith. So for those who say, I only believe in science, you must realize that you are also using faith to believe on the basic assumption of what you're saying. We all need faith. And if we only believe that there's a material world, then you know we have a greater problem. Why do we have a greater problem? Thomas Nagel, a philosopher, he says, the thoroughly materialistic view of nature can't account for human consciousness, cognition, and moral values. What he's saying? If we just believe in the material world, how do you know what is morality? Who decides? Science can tell us how things are, but it cannot tell us how things ought to be. What do I mean? Let me give you an example, a more concrete example. Fair, uh, Caroline Ferber, she's an anthropologist she goes around studying tribal cultures. And she often, because she's an atheist, she also criticizes missionaries for bringing their foreign culture into those tribes. She says, you should leave them alone. Our, the Christian values are not superior to theirs. Okay, but she makes this interesting statement. She says, every time I go to the tribes, I will notice that the women are often being abused. And even though I know my values are not superior to theirs, whenever I can help, I will help. What, what, what is she saying? She says intellectually she believes she is no more superior than the tribal values. And so the women being abused, we should leave them alone. But something tells me I need to do something about it. This, where does this something come about? This is what I mean, what things ought to be. Things are the women are being abused. Things ought to be, they shouldn't be. Where does this value come from? So we create for ourselves a bigger problem if we merely believe in a materialistic world. Because in a thoroughly materialistic world, there is no true good or evil. How do we reconcile that? So as we deal with all these questions, we come back to our point about the resurrection. The resurrection is not just hate knowledge. Although I've been trying to reason with you The resurrection is about our lives. How it makes a difference. There was a nine-year-old boy called Philip. He has Down syndrome. And so his Sunday school class mates always make fun of him because he's different from them. One Easter, the teacher gave them an assignment. He gave them a plastic egg. You know, open the plastic egg and it's empty. She says, you give 10 minutes, go and find something and put in this egg to symbolize new life. Also, the kids were very excited. They went out and collected things. Ten minutes later, they came back. They surrounded the table. They were really excited. The first one opened up. There was a seed. And they went, ooh, new life. The second one was a flower. The third was a butterfly. Someone captured a butterfly and put it into the egg. And the kids went, ooh, you know. They were really excited. Then another egg opened up and it was a rock. The boy said, I knew you were going to take all these flowers and leaves. So I wanted to be different. So I put in a rock that everybody laughed. Then they opened an egg which was empty. Nothing inside. And the kids went, ah, this one unfair, you know. We worked so hard to, kept, to put things in. This person didn't even put in any effort. And then the teacher felt a tugging behind her. She turned around and it was Philip. The boy said, this is mine. I did it. It's empty. I have new life because of the empty tomb. And the whole class fell silent. From then on, they accepted Philip as one of them. A year later, Philip got some infection and because of his condition, got complicated and he died. During his funeral, there was a touching scene where eight or nine Kids from the Sunday school walked through his casket and put down a loved gift. They put on his casket an empty egg. Because the tomb was empty, we have hope. What does that mean to you? It means for those of us with loved ones who have passed on. We have regrets. We have tears. We have things to say to them. But you know what? You don't have to hold on to them. You can put them at the empty tomb of Jesus. I always say, you know, as a pastor, what I do the most is funerals. Okay? Probably more than you have ever attended. And if during the funeral, the person is not a the believer, the frank, to be frank, I have no words of comfort to say. What are you going to say? Get over it. Time will heal. Really? You know, when you die, you die, you know, that's the end. But for those who are in Christ, you know, we have hope. We can grieve, but it's grief like not one without hope. And so today, if you're struggling with this, no matter what, we can put it down at an empty tomb of Christ because one day, we'll see our loved ones again. But that truth also works itself back into this life. We may feel like we have missed God's plan A. You know, I don't have the ideal job. The ideal marriage, don't have children. We feel like we have missed out or we have been shortchanged. But friends, we don't have to feel like that. We have the resurrected life, a real physical life. And therefore, in this life, we can focus on God's kingdom. We can live sacrificially. Let our lives be about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God itself. You know, this past week, we had the prayer labyrinth. I wish more of you were here. 200 people attended, but I think it was meaningful. And we explained before, that the difference between a labyrinth and a maze is that in a maze, there are many exits and entrances. Right? You walk in a maze, you get lost. You don't know which way to turn. But the labyrinth is different. It's one way in and one way out. Although when you're walking inside, you feel like a maze, you know, but you just need to follow on. And the labyrinth brings you into the center, the heart of God's will. And I feel like as a believer, when we believe in the resurrected life, we are walking through a labyrinth, not a maze. You don't have to worry that you missed out on plan A, you made the wrong decision. I mean, we just have to repent, turn to God, trust God's Word, submit to Him, honour Him and when we don't, we fall, we turn back and we are in God's hands and you realise that you are actually walking through a labyrinth. God is bringing you on this journey that we grow to more Christ-likeness and we can live for Him. So, friends, today as we come together to celebrate the resurrection, because the tomb is empty, you and I have the resurrected hope. Let's pray. Let's spend some time responding to the Lord in prayer, especially through the whole land season. You know, you have if you read the daily devotion and God spoke to you, or through the dawn prayer, or through our CPR or even yesterday when our 26 brothers and sisters got baptized or got transferred and we listened to their stories of new life or even through the message today. Maybe God has spoken to you and I want us to respond to the Lord in prayer. Maybe it's a thanksgiving. Maybe it's a struggle, a shame that we have put it down. But let us claim our resurrected life in Christ. I also want to give an opportunity for people who are new in us. If you have not accepted Christ and you want this resurrected life, you know a life on your own is not what you want. It's not fulfilling. You want to experience this resurrected life. Says, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and Christ came to die for me and I want to believe Him, accept Him into my life. If there's somebody like that, I encourage you to raise up your hands and then put it down. This is an indication to God if there are people in our midst who are not yet believers and you want to experience this resurrected life you can raise your hands as an indication to the Lord says yes God Lord Jesus I want you to come into my life and after that you can put it down Is there anybody? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you because you have resurrected. We have hope. We have life. We have no fear, no regrets. We can place our lives into your hands and entrust it to you. For those of us who are struggling, of dealing with struggles, shame, tears. Lord, help us to surrender them before your empty tomb. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let us stand. Let's respond with this song.